Hello, all ye travel and mobility professionals. I am your host, Ray Rackham, and welcome to this episode two of The Open World. Now, for those who have listened to episode one, I can say without fear of success or contradiction that I think we did okay. My guest, Carsten Osberg, who is Chief Strategy Officer for CIBT Visas, has promised to return. So I didn't scare him off, which is always a plus. And we've had some lovely feedback from listeners. But do keep your feedback coming, as we want this podcast to remain informative, interesting, but most of all, a great listen. I am joined in our recording studio, nestled along the banks of the River Thames in London by a very special guest today. But I am going to keep your anticipation peaked, as is my want as your host of the Open World podcast, and first explore what travel and immigration professionals might be considering on the near horizon. First, some travel visa news as we make our way to Kenya. The government of Kenya has announced plans to eliminate entry visas for citizens of all other African nations. President William Ruto said that the move is part of the process of implementing a continent-wide free trade area across Africa and is designed to promote mobility for Africans of all nationalities. Kenya joins three other African nations, the Gambia, Benin and Seychelles, in scrapping visa requirements for citizens of other African nations. This follows much advocacy from the African Union, which represents 55 African nations calling for the removal of all travel barriers between its members. The change is expected to come into force by the end of the year. Second, some not-so-great news out of the Netherlands. The Dutch Lower House of Parliament has passed legislation that would gradually remove tax concessions for highly skilled foreign workers. Known colloquially as the 30% rule, highly skilled foreign workers currently do not have to pay tax on up to 30% of their earnings for the first five years of employment in the Netherlands. In a move to change this concession, those highly skilled foreign nationals who are eligible would from the 1st of January next year instead receive up to 30% reduction on income tax for the first 20 months only, with this gradually reducing over the period of 60 months to no reduction at all. Aimed originally as a means to attract talent and to mitigate against some of the costs incurred in highly skilled foreign workers relocating to the Netherlands, the removal of the 30% rule will have an impact on salaries and labour costs. Although likely to be effective in January, the proposed changes still need to go through the Upper House of Parliament, and as such, a vote is expected in December of this year. And whilst we're on the subject of some not-great news, we finish up our Near Horizon section with some news from the UK. The UK government has confirmed that the immigration health surcharge is set to increase no earlier than the 16th of January next year. Health surcharge fees will increase from £624 per year to over £1,000 per year for most applicants and will increase from £470 per year to almost £800 per year for children, youth mobility workers, students and their dependents. 
This increase intends to fulfill the government's 2019 manifesto commitment to ensure that the health charge reflects the full cost to the NHS for treating health charge payers. Although, the eagle-eared among us will remember that Prime Minister Sunak suggested in the summer of this year that fee increases would also be utilised to fund public sector pay increases. Either way, employers should consider making sponsorship and immigration applications ahead of the rise, wherever possible, and adjust their budgets for other visa-related fees for 2024. And as the jingle bells of the holiday season can be heard in the not-so-distant future, those were three things to consider on the near horizon. So, to the title of today's podcast, Advocacy in Action. It will be no surprise to many of our listeners that advocacy plays a pivotal role in what we do, as governments are constantly rethinking, refining and revising immigration and visa rules, they open a window to the successful advocate who might be able to position arguments to improve visa conditions for migrant workers and their families and ultimately make the world a better place. Advocacy is indeed an art form and I am in the company of a master craftsperson in our guest today a human being who has devoted much of her time and career to making the world a better place. So without further ado, apart from the obligatory drum roll, I am joined by an incredible guest, Jill Gordon. Starting her career in international HR at Ford Motor Company, Jill spent most of her career at Schlumberger, and her last appointment was HR Director UK from 2014 to 2020 based out of London. She's held many different positions within Schlumberger and spent over 10 years on expatriate assignments in France, Germany and the US. Jill has been an active and fully voiced member of our community for many years and never more so than as chair of Permits Foundation. It is no secret that I have been a fan of Jill's work with Permits Foundation for many years and have watched Jill and the Foundation achieve incredible results for expatriates and their families. Jill, it is wonderful to have you with us on the Open World podcast today. Thank you very much indeed, Ray. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. It's just a joy to be joined by guests who sit outside of CIBT Newland Chase and in the real world. So thank you for being being my first real world guest on this podcast. Thank you very much indeed. Now, Jill, I thought we'd start with a little bit of a conversation about your work with Permits Foundation, sure. if that's OK. Absolutely. I mean, can you give us a bit of background as to the Permits Foundation? What are the goals of the foundation and, and what is your role? Absolutely. So Permits Foundation is a not-for-profit organisation that's registered in the Netherlands. It's known as a Stichting. Mm -hmm. Our main goal is to persuade governments to improve uh, work permit regulations so that the partners of highly skilled mobile employees can gain immediate work access in the new host country. Yeah. I'm the chair of the foundation. I was the treasurer uh, quite a number of years back. Uh-huh. We have a, a great board that's made up of uh, 12 different board members from very different organisations and uh, and uh, business areas. Mm-hmm. We also support uh, the wonderful permits team that we have under Helen Frew as the director. Yes. Absolutely. And your board is really made up of some 
incredible voices in our industry and beyond as well. It really does have that breadth of experience and years and decades of experience of what we do. Yeah, yeah we, we do. We have a huge amount of expertise on, on the board. Yeah. And, and so how long have you been involved with Permits Foundation? So I've actually been involved with Permits Foundation, can you believe, 22 years. <laughs> wow. So I was one of the founder members. Yep. There are actually four of us uh, that are on the board that, that are founder members. The very, very first person to have the idea of Permits Foundation yeah. was Katie Van Der Vilk, yes. who I, I, I know you know. Huge fan. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and also uh, Julie Onslow Cole yep. and of course uh, Siobhan Cummins. And Siobhan. Um, I, I know you know both of them uh, yes. very well. Yeah. Then you know we have uh, many more board members that have joined more recently. Together everybody provides that um, amount of you know energy and enthusiasm and, and expertise. And so it really did start with a kind of initial concept with Kathleen and then the four of you getting together to really flesh out what was going to be the aspirations of the foundation and what you've worked on for the last 22 years. Yes. So, I mean, it happened... uh uh, you know, very interestingly, back in 2000, I was based in Paris at the time, got yep. a telephone call from Katie from The Hague. Mm-hmm. She was at, at that point the head of the uh, Shell Spouse Employment Centre yep. and uh, said, Jill, are you having issues with dual careers? We talked about it and uh, I said, yes, absolutely. She said, would you like to come to a meeting in The Hague with other companies? I said, yes, I would. And uh, there were, you know, a number of other companies there and uh, the conclusion of that was that we needed to do something about it and we agreed that we would we would set up this uh, not-for-profit organisation. It's basically been a very much a collaborative effort. Yeah, and really advocating for the power of dual careers for any professional uh, couple, be it one person moving to a country. What about what we used to call back in the old days the trailing spouse Yes. But obviously the vernacular has had to change because yes. of the, the makeup of what it what it means to be a partner or spouse or yep. a married partner, same sex partner. Very, very much so. Things have changed a lot yes. since, uh, since those early days. Um, I want to I want to go back just a bit. Like you've achieved incredible things as an organization uh, in Japan, Singapore, Brazil, the European Union Blue Card Directive. You've also protected a lot of existing rights, so for example, in the UK. In which countries is it still difficult or, or impossible for an accompanying partner or dual career national, uh, person to get a work permit? Unfortunately, there are still many countries where it's extremely difficult or, or indeed Im- impossible. We have made a lot of progress, as, as you say, Ray, when we started. There were only three countries uh, that allowed the partner, well, the spouse we talked about at the yes. time to work automatically. And that was the UK, Australia and, uh, and New Zealand. If you look at the world map that we have on our website, mm-hmm. um, you will see that there are many countries that are flagged in, in red, colour-coded red, because they are the most difficult ones. And the ones that would be most frequently mentioned by our network would be countries such as China, India, uh, South Africa. And it's quite interesting, if you if you look at the world map, you can also see that if you look at Asia, Middle East and Africa, um, there's a strong contrast there the number of red countries versus the heavy amount of green for good practice countries in Europe, the Americas, uh, Australia and New Zealand. Yes. 
So we've got a, a, still a lot of work to do in some of the continents. You touch on a really good point there. You listen to organisations, companies, businesses who are telling you where it's difficult. So it's not just your goals and your aspirations don't just come from the people on your board, but actually from listening and engaging with the wider community. Very much so. For us, that's a key part of it, is Which, understanding the, the issues for our, the companies. I remember we had a fascinating meeting when I was head of immigration at HSBC. And yes. we got together and it really did. I mean, I'd always known about Permits Foundation because of working with Julia all those years ago. But yes. it really did open my eyes to just how far we still have to go in yes. many countries around the world. And looking at the map on your website... It shows just how far we've come, but just how far we still have to go. Very much so, Ray. We mentioned briefly earlier about the concept of what is a partner, be it spouse, unmarried partner, same-sex partner. I mean, that's changed over the years. How has the foundation evolved to support different types of partnerships in your goals? Yes, so you're absolutely right. I mean, the language there has changed enormously mm -hmm. over the last uh, 20 years as societies have evolved. Absolutely. What we have tried to do, of course, is to generally, you know, as you say, listen to what's happening, what's needed, and then to try and reflect that. I mean, what we what we also did recently was that we had, uh, as you know, a large survey back in, in 22. Yes. We found out from that that the vast majority of uh, global mobility professionals, mm -hmm. they welcome a wider definition of family member that are able to access work. Yes, apart from the, the, the spouse, we have the non-married partner, we have the same-sex partner. We also have working-age children, Absolutely. Uh, which is an issue for families moving and not wanting to leave behind maybe a you know a 17 or an 18-year-old uh, young person yes. uh, that, that is not going on to, to further study. Who is still part of that family. Very much part of that family. Absolutely. And it's critical that that family unit remains together. Mm -hmm. We have included that now in our best practice model, and you can see that reflected too on the on on the website. We raise these general issues in the discussions that we have with governments. We also were increasingly trying to highlight them on our on our world map. Absolutely, and I think it's also worth noting that it isn't a one size fits all in any sense of the word, is it? No. You know, you, the success that you have in one country cannot be mirrored or replicated. In another, you have to have a completely different approach almost every time. Very much so. So it must be difficult to know where to start. What is the process of initiating this type of advocacy with governments? Does it change depending on each and every government? It does indeed. Yeah. And we have to do quite a lot of work in understanding exactly what the situation is in any particular country mm -hmm. uh, before we start any work. I love that. We have to do quite an amount of work before we start any yes. work. Yeah. It's such a true true statement, yes, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. The amount of research and the amount of understanding of cultural differences, nuances, is all stuff that you also do as a foundation. What we then try to do is, in some cases, there may be quite a clear process for engaging mm -hmm. with the government. Uh, for example, there might be a consultation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that we can submit papers on. There may be a bill, an immigration bill, for example, that we can try to join up with. 
what we try to do is to provide evidence-based recommendations to governments, and that's why our surveys are incredibly important. So, you know, we've been able to use, for example, consultations uh, to start our work on South Africa, Mm -hmm. which is one of the the difficult countries that I mentioned. And uh, we have had a a large amount of success with the EU uh, because of the directives that, uh, that they have introduced and that then we have been able to submit recommendations for and ultimately be able to get clauses inserted looking after the, the rights of partners. So it's that active engagement and identifying opportunities as well as and when they come in each jurisdiction in each country. Very much so. And with the European Union in a collection of countries and member states. Very much so. I'm going to ask you to, I'm going to be a bit mean here and ask you to list the top three things you do in starting to convince governments to rethink their rules on partners, what would they be? So, um, (laughs) (laughs) so we'll start and try and make this one uh, fairly uh, straightforward. The first one is that we try to convince governments uh, to make their country more attractive to inward investment Mm -hmm. because there's a very strong link between allowing partners to work and being attractive to top talent. Absolutely. Enabling partner work access helps countries obtain a competitive advantage in being able to attract talent. Many governments are very keenly aware of demographic challenges, talent shortages. Talent is key. Talent is key. key. So that would be the the first one. The second one is then the changing expectations of uh, of international families, you talked about the uh, kind of more classic type of, uh, mm-hmm. of of family earlier, Ray. But today, a family expects to be able to work; the partner be able uh, expect to be able to work in the host country. Families need a dual income when they've been used to a dual income. Absolutely, suddenly reducing to one can cause a lot of hardship. And the other very important aspect is that the Partners themselves are are actually highly qualified. Um, From our last survey, we were able to confirm that over 80% of them have either, you know, a master's degree or higher, are themselves talent. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a kind of human condition argument here as well, isn't it? That whilst the traditional family of one working spouse or partner and one staying at home. Yes, that absolutely still exists, but it doesn't exist in all cases and particularly around the kind of talent argument that invariably you will find talent attracts talent as well. Very much so. And so to couple that with the, we're noticing at CIBT New and Chase a huge amount of economic revitalization. So immigration rules being used to revitalize economies after the pandemic, deal with aging population, skill shortages, all of those things, then actually to attract the widest pool of talent, you have to think about the home life as well. Yes, you do. And that, I think, is something Permits Foundation has done spectacularly well for those 22 years. Thank you. So uh, so anyway, that's the second point. And then yep. the, the final one that I would mention is that allowing the, the accompanying partner to work will not negatively impact the local workforce because the numbers are actually quite small. And because yeah. these people are highly skilled, they are generally not taking any jobs away from the local workforce. Mm-hmm. And we know that that's often the most sensitive reason. The concept of protectionism exactly. of the resident labour market. E- exactly. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. And I think 
I mean, you've been spectacularly successful over the years, but this is a bit of a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How long does it take typically to be successful? Well, that's the unknown question. <laughs> yes. um, and uh, we have to be extraordinarily patient uh, sometimes yep. and persistent. I mean, as you know, the situation can change in countries. You get new governments, you get changes of uh, policy direction, yep. etc. We can't change any of that. So there's a, you know, basically every country has its own timeline. Mm -hmm. But just to give you a few examples, if we take the EU Intercorporate Transfer Directive, yeah. that took us four years to achieve. Yeah. Uh, in fact, Helen helped a lot on that because uh, she was spending a lot of time in the European uh, arena working on that. With Brazil, which was another country that uh, we were very involved with, that took five years yeah. um, from the first I hosted a a meeting of interested companies over in uh, Rio. Because that's what you do, you hold roundtables yes, with yes, companies that are interested in helping with this engagement and advocacy. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And between that first meeting then and actually we were able to use, it was a migration bill that was going through Parliament and we were able to make a case that this would be a very, very good opportunity to insert a clause uh, for partners and we were delighted uh, when that was accepted yeah. and then uh, that, that became law and, and that has really made Brazil a, a very good practice country as a result. And an attractive destination yes. for talented families. Yes. And yes. I think that's, you know, it's something that cannot be denied that the work you do, it takes time, doesn't yes. it? It's not it's not a quick fix for the advocate no. who only wants to dip their toes in and be in and out within an hour. No. You know, this no. is years. No, of, it, it, it can take a very long time. Yeah. I mean, occasionally we can get a, uh, what would you say, a kind of a quicker win. I mean, Ireland, yes. for example, on the with a critical skills visa, mm -hmm. that was uh, one. I mean, we were involved in quite a lot of initiatives there. But that, that one we were very pleased went uh, quite quickly. It's taking a lot longer with the intercorporate transfer visa for Ireland, which, you know, we can come back to later. Just to give you, you know, a, a, a few quick examples. And small wins are enormous wins in this world, aren't yes. they? You know, to open a door on one type of visa enables you to continue to have that conversation. Very, very much so. Which is important. Very mm. much so. Okay, so without naming names, unless you want to, how does your approach differ with dealing with countries that are very reluctant to this type of change? What we have to do is adapt the strategy that I, I talked about earlier. Yep. And we may have to be sometimes very tailored mm -hmm. in a particular country. What is very helpful that you touched on a moment ago, Ray, is bringing in uh, local companies uh, or networks of influence, for example, it could be employers, yes. associations, to help reinforce our case. That is so helpful when governments realise that, that this is a real issue for companies that are operating in their country. You know, there have been many occasions when we've been told that change is not possible. Um, uh, I mean, here I will, men you know, make a, a <laughs> particular uh, reference. We saw quite a big change in the US with the, the change between the Trump administration and the Biden administration. Yes. So there were some changes that we were able to get there as, as a result simply of a, of a government uh, change. We have to be very aware that uh, this is a long game. And Absolutely. in many occasions, we just 
have to keep trying to get the topic on the agenda and find the right opportunities for uh, for making it happen. And knowing sometimes that your destiny as a foundation can turn on a dime. Yes. A change of administration, a change of policy, public opinion, all of those things. Kind Absolutely. Of they're, they're in that cauldron, aren't they? They're, very, very much they're so. They're part, part of the discussion. What does the future hold for Permits Foundation? What countries are you working on specifically now? Having now reached uh, round about 35 countries that we would call best practice, yeah. we remain very optimistic that we can you know, achieve a lot more. By the way, the most recent success that we had was with Luxembourg. Yes. They're yeah. just hot, uh, off the <laughs> hot off the press. That was on the 1st of September yeah. for both the blue card and the intercorporate transfer visa. So we are working specifically at the moment on, on India. South Africa, yep. Ireland uh, mm-hmm. for the for the intercorporate transfer visa. We really would love to get them over the line on on that one. Uh, USA, there's still a lot of work to be done. So just to perhaps add a few words on some of those, India we have been working on for quite a long time. Yes. We have managed to get a couple of changes uh, there already. For example, that the family uh, partner doesn't have to leave the country just to be able to make an application for mm-hmm. a visa, which you know was incredible. We managed to get that changed. And we also provided a lot of information to the Indian uh, government about the usefulness of intracorporate transfer visas. They've now adopted an, an Indian equivalent, uh, which we were very happy which about. Is phenomenal. Um, so mm-hmm. we're now, say, trying to get them over the line in terms of allowing the, the spouse to work on an intercorporate yes. transfer visa transfer in. So uh, uh, that one, say, we, we still got some way to go. South Africa, we have submitted several papers and received uh, a lot of uh, very good comment back from the government. But there, the political situation is not the easiest at the moment. It's quite challenging. So uh, we're having to be a little bit patient yes. uh, there. Then, as I say, um, Ireland, I've already mentioned. We are now also considering the Middle East as a possible area to start our advocacy in. Which a few years ago would have seemed the impossible Absolutely area. impossible. I mean, we what we do, we, we come back very regularly as a board mm-hmm. to discuss you know where where should be the next countries that uh, that we start to move into we do believe that the time is coming when we ought to be able to look at UAE and uh, indeed uh, Saudi Arabia absolutely with all of the the work that's going in Saudi Arabia their 2030 vision the neon project there is so much going on in Saudi that it could be the time to start opening the discussion that's what we're hoping yeah. um you know we're very much aware of is that If you can achieve some success in a region or even a continent, you can get one country to be best practice. That often inspires other countries in the region to then follow. There's a little bit of a competitive element. Yeah, absolutely. So that's why it would be wonderful if we could uh, start to get some progress in the Middle East. And they, and again, back to that concept of small victories in advocacy make an enormous change yes. in the long run. Yes. How can individuals and corporations in mobility and travel help the Permits Foundation? I would say that the most important aspect of that is that it is a collective effort to achieve change, that individual organisations 
don't like to really make themselves too obvious when it's a question of immigration, mm-hmm. which, as we know, can be quite sensitive. So that's why having the support of corporations, mobility providers, Mm -hmm. professional services uh, companies uh, like yourselves. The entire community. The entire community. There are eyes on on our ears on the ground and are also a wonderful part of what we do and and everybody working together trying to achieve the same aim. And we're hugely grateful to the 40 or so sponsors that we have, such as yourselves at uh, at Newland Chase and your particular help, Ray, because obviously we we go back a few years now and we mentioned two HSBC (laughs) days. It's thanks to that collaborative effort that we're able to make this progress. Well, Jill, it has been a distinct pleasure having you join us on the Open World Podcast. I am going to ask you to return because I do want to know a little bit more about your career and the lessons that you've learned along the way. But your work at Permits Foundation is, to put it mildly, inspirational. And I truly wish Permits Foundation every success in continuing to advocate for dual careers, a subject that is so important on so many levels. So if any of our listeners are interested in helping Permits Foundation, they can contact Permits Foundation at the website, permitsfoundation.com. You can stalk me and I'll put you in touch with Jill or in any way that we interact in our, in our truly open world. Do get in touch. Uh, before we close, I did want to shout out one final time to Julia, Siobhan and Kathleen and Jill for all of the work you've done in making our world a better place. Advocacy is not about waiting for others to make the argument for you. It's about finding what you care about and putting your energies into supporting arguments, researching positions and ideas, and ultimately our coming together as a community to make our world a better place. Permits Foundation does just that. And I am so proud that CIBT Newland Chase continues to support the work it does. And I'm daily inspired by the commitment of Jill and other board members who go above and beyond for people they will never even meet, which is a truly admirable way of being. So listeners, that brings us to the end of the Open World Podcast. Thank you, Jill, for joining me. Thank you very much (laughs) indeed, Ray. It's been an enormous pleasure and an honour. It's always lovely to see you. I'd like to also thank the team back at CIBT Newland Chase who make this podcast possible. And finally, to you, listeners, for listening. Safe travels, friends, and I will see you soon.